14. <clears throat> We have been going through the prophecy of Zechariah and um, just begun to enter into chapter 14. And we'll read verses 1 to 11 this morning. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Israel, against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord... Oh, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. From Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate. And from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And people will live in it and there will be no more curse. For Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, we want to continue this morning <clears throat> with this uh, amazing 14th chapter of Zechariah. And I say amazing, it is. You wonder what... Zechariah thought whenever he said some of these things. He talks about this plague in verse 12 that uh, will be upon the, all the peoples who go to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and that type of thing. Just uh, uh, pictures of, that are uh, incredible things. The, uh, verse 6, the, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, and that's translated differently in different Bibles. It's difficult to translate. Literally, the glorious ones will congeal. Uh, what type of thing did he have in his mind when he wrote these things, when he said these things? And uh, he talks about a day towards the end of the chapter where uh, it says that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Well, what was he thinking of? What did it? What 
came to his mind. <clears throat> and for any of the Jews that read this, it must have been an enigmatic chapter. We saw last week that whatever historical fulfillment this may have had in the past, uh, surely there definitely seems to be some type of illusion or foreshadowing of the last day. Uh, so many of these things that come up here are repeated later in Scripture and even in the book of Revelation. Um, you have here in verse 5, uh, Zechariah speaks of a day when the Lord will come and all the holy ones with Him. And uh, again, he speaks in verse 7 of a unique day known to the Lord. And verse 9 uh, a day when the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day He'll be the only one, His name the only one. And in verse 11, He talks about there will be no more curse. So all of those things, like I said, whatever fulfillment they may have had already in the past, and uh, some of the commentators down through the years and Bible students have have thought that they did have some fulfillment in the past, but whatever fulfillment they've had in the past, it certainly seems like there's terms used here that uh, are foreshadowing something big at the end. And uh, like I said, these things are echoed in the book of Revelation, for example. And so <clears throat> it seems these things will ultimately find their fulfillment at the Lord's second coming. But at the same time, we saw, I trust, a lot of reasons not to take these things physically. Verse 8 talks about this river that will flow out. Uh, that comes up a lot in Scripture. Lord willing, we're going to look at that some today. But it's plainly used in a symbolic sense. Not talking about an irrigation project or a river over there in physical Israel. Uh, also in verse uh, 10, when it talks about the land all flattening out into a plain and Jerusalem rising. You have the same type of language in the New Testament where John the Baptist, for example, comes along and he makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, he wasn't out there clearing out stones and things physically, but, but spiritually he was making straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. That is, those that were humble would be Lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The proud, the exalted ones would be abased. And so here this picture of Jerusalem, you see, come, rises up over everything else, and everything else flattens out around it. What a picture this is. And then also in uh, verse 15, it talks about the plague that will be on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey. I don't think it's talking about... A literal army. That's if there were if there were an army of the future, they're not going to use horses and mules and donkeys. That's not the type of things that we use in warfare in our day. But it's a, it's a representation of judgment upon these enemies of God's people. And um, again, in verse 16, that uh, this idea of all the nations coming up literally to Jerusalem. First of all, there wouldn't be room for them. But secondly. Uh, this Feast of Booths was symbolical. It's been done away. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And so I think it's a mistake to think of that as some kind of a literal or physical thing. It's literal in the sense that it's really going to happen, but it's spiritual in its fulfillment. And then uh, 
Also, maybe even more than any of these that I mentioned in verse 21, he talks about sacrificing taking place. And we know that Christ has offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. Sacrifices have been abolished. There never will be. It's unthinkable that any Christian would again offer sacrifices, blood sacrifices, after Christ has shed His blood and done away with the sacrifices. Uh, It's similar to the book of Hebrews, where it talks about how the Levitical priesthood is done away. It's gone. And yet in Malachi it says, when Jesus comes, He'll purify the sons of Levi, that they might offer an offering to the Lord in righteousness. What's that talking about? Spiritual. We are the true sons of Levi, every Christian, and Christians are a spiritual priesthood, says that, that we're priests who offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So again, many of these things are not to be taken physically, and yet I do believe that there's many allusions here to the last day. So with that little review... Let me just uh, go over um, again the things that we saw last week. We considered three great truths from verses 1 to 5. First of all, it appears that in the end time, persecution of God's people and opposition to God will actually increase, not only increase, but come to a head and a climax. And you remember we looked last week at how Jesus said that In Matthew 24, that there will be great tribulation such as has never been since the foundation of the world. And I know that some of that discourse there refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but it seems like as you read it, it's talking about something bigger than that. Uh, Revelation in chapter 19 talks about this beast and all the kings of the earth and their armies coming up to wage war against who? The one who sits on the white horse, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, Christ is not going to come riding on a literal white horse and fighting literal armies. Because it says right there, he has a two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth. Is that the way you think Jesus really looks? That's a picture, you see. That's a symbolical representation of a reality, of a spiritual reality. And so what is this warfare? Well, they're all going to gather together. The whole world's going to gather together to fight against Christ and against believers. And so, if anything, we expect there to be a time coming when the saints are going to experience tremendous opposition, much more than what we see right now in the world. Gathering together the whole world to make war with Him who sits on the white horse. And that's what we see here in Zechariah 14 too. All nations gathered together against God's people. Uh, And they'll have a great deal of seeming success. It talks about all kinds of devastation taking place here. In Jerusalem, Revelation 13.7 we looked at. It was given to Him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And what what does it say? The entire world then will worship the beast and so in other words christianity apparently almost obliterated from the earth Um, that type of situation Uh, apparent defeat for christians but then secondly 
We saw that when things look their very worst, God is still in control. He says here in verse 2, I'm going to gather the nations against Jerusalem. And he gathers the nations against Jerusalem, not to destroy Jerusalem, but in order that he might destroy the nations. God's the one in control. And we saw numerous passages in Revelation. You remember in Revelation 19, the angel calls these birds of, of uh, the heavens to come and feast at God, what he calls God's great supper that he's preparing. And that is a feast of all the slain of the world. Maybe I ought to just read it to you once again. There were some that, that weren't here. Uh, <clears throat> he says... Uh, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God. Now, isn't that quite a way of saying it? In order that you may eat the flesh of, of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. So here's this summoning of the birds to feast on these people at God's great supper. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So God's in control of it all. When things look their worst, when it seems like the enemies of God are rising up, and we don't know what it'll be in in this country. Things that were unthinkable in a lot of other countries have come to pass. We don't know what type of opposition Christians will face, but we do know this. When opposition seems to be the greatest, God is the one that's in control of the whole thing. And He does it not to destroy His people, um, but to judge the nations that are coming against them. Um, and that's the third thing that we saw from these verses, and that is when things look their worst and all seems to be lost and impossible, Christ will come with His holy angels in flaming fire to judge His enemies and to deliver His people. And of course we see that taught repeatedly in the New Testament. Uh, here in Zechariah, he says, In that day God's going to come, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And uh, <clears throat> whether that's talking about something that will physically happen, the physical Mount of Olives, I question that. But it certainly signifies this, the Lord coming directly to our aid. The Lord coming with His holy ones. And uh, that which seemed to be the greatest obstacle to our escape will be split apart and be made the way of escape. And that's what this signifies, I think, here on this Mount, uh, Mount of Olives splitting apart and being the way for them to escape. Anyway, uh, uh, it says in verse 5b, the Lord, oh my God, will come and all His holy ones with Him. There's a kind of an obscure passage in Jude that we never read much. But this is what he says. About these also Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones 
to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's quite a verse, isn't it? All these ungodly things and the things that the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Lord came with 10,000 of His holy ones. So anyway, we want to go on here this morning to look at verses 6 through 8. And we're told in verses 6 and 7 that it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Now, if you get some different commentaries that are not all from the same strain, you'll find some incredible interpretation of these verses. But uh, what I want us to do is just to get a feel and try, and I don't know how to do this except for looking at verses, and that tends to be not very edifying sometimes. But you need to get a feel for how much the Bible uses this kind of language. Cataclysmic events happening at a time of judgment. And um, I think we'll get a little feel for what's going on here in Zechariah. So let's read some of these. First of all, in Joel. And we'll just, I won't comment too much on them, but, and I don't know if you, if you want to just listen, you can. But uh, in, in Joel, <clears throat> chapter 3 and verses 19, or let's see, verses 13, I'm sorry, wrote this down wrong, verses 13 to 16, he says, put in the sickle, now just, just think of how some of this language is echoed in the New Testament. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, not our decision, but God's decision of judgment. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. <clears throat> And the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. You see how parallel that is? And here's the sun and the moon growing dark and the stars losing their brightness. And then even back in Joel <clears throat> chapter 2, and these are the verses that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. Um, verse 30, he says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, again, all these signs in the heavens. And um, then in Isaiah, we'll look at several in Isaiah and then we'll go to the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 13, beginning at verse 6. 
Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel, now this is something, isn't it? Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. And thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end <clears throat> to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Isn't this amazing? God says, I'll make mortal man scarcer than gold. Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. These are not little things, are they? Incredible statements. And then in Isaiah 34, verses 1-4, to Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains here, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and His wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. And then one more passage in Isaiah, chapter 24. Beginning at verse 17. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are open and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall, never to rise again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days they will be punished, and the moon will be abashed, and the sun ashamed. 
For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Think of that, the book of Revelation, these elders falling down before the throne. So I say incredible pictures repeatedly coming up about this day of God's judgment and this day of God's wrath and even the stars falling from the sky and the sun being turned to darkness and all those. I think... I don't. I think it's a mistake to assign special meanings to each one of those things. You notice how the pictures change depending on what you read. But it's talking about cataclysmic events taking place. I mean the whole earth and the heavens and everything rolled up like a scroll and God coming and devastating and judging fallen wicked humanity. Again, <clears throat> let's read a couple from the New Testament because... It would be very incomplete if we didn't. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And verse... 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, now we talked about the great tribulation, verse 21 that he mentioned, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Quotes here from the Old Testament. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He'll send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they'll gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. What a scene here. Um... The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall. Uh, someone interpreted it like this. is talking about the collapse of established order. And I think that's a pretty good description. The collapse of established order or established authority. Everything caving in and giving way before the coming of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> these things don't seem very real to us. But there, either this is going to happen or God's a liar and there's no God. That's how, that's how real they are. It's going to happen that these things that I read there in the Old Testament, that there's a time when it's all going to come to an end. Um, you know, just think of this. <clears throat> when the great day comes and the sky rolls back, and everything collapses and everything grows dark in the presence of God and His judgment upon the earth. I think it was uh, Keith McLeod that told us some men one time. <clears throat> he, they, I don't know if he did this or someone else, but he, they, the, the preacher went around the room and he said, do you think Christ is going to come today? He said, I think not. And he went to the next guy, do you think He might come today? Well, I think not. And he went around and everybody said, I think not. 
And then he quoted the verse, In such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. <laughs> and that's, that's what Jesus said. I mean, all things continue on. That's what the scoffers will say. All things continue on just the way they always have. Where is the promise of His coming? Everything goes on just like it always did. And that's what Jesus said too. He said they'll be just like in the days of Noah. Right up until the time of the flood, they continued on. They were eating and drinking. They were marrying. They were giving in marriage until. And then it happened. Well, one more scripture on this. Revelation uh, chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now we're not talking about, you know that every star is a sun. All the suns that are in the sky are not going to fall to the earth. It's talking about something spiritual here. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, you remember these passages we read in the Old Testament, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? There's, don't get the idea you're going to bear up and you know play the man when you face the wrath of God. That's not going to happen. We will give in. It's like Jonathan Edwards said. It's like a spider saying it's going to bear up against a blast furnace. It just gives in instantly. That's what's going to happen when men see the wrath of God coming. Their hearts will fail them for fear. And they'll say, fall on us and hide us. Suicide and annihilation are far preferable to facing the judgment God says is coming. They would much, men would like the idea of being able to be annihilated or being able to disappear out of the scene. But that won't work. Men will actually cry to the rocks and mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the presence of God. Amazing things. Well, I think this is the import of these uh, great pictures about <clears throat> the powers of the heavens being shaken and turning dark and so on. Now, this is I'm in a dilemma now because I hadn't planned to spend that long on this. And I really wanted to get to talking about the river. Maybe we have time. We'll go ahead and talk some about this river. Back to Zechariah chapter 14. Isn't this something now, what he says? God's going to gather the nations. They're going to seem to have, to, to wreak great devastation on God's people, but the gathering is actually God gathering them that he might destroy them. 
And whenever it looks impossible, the Lord is going to come, and He's going to come in judgment. And it's going to be so cataclysmic that it can only be described as the powers of heaven, the, the heavenly bodies turning dark and everything falling out of place, and the sky being rolled back like a scroll. And then, after all of that, <clears throat> this amazing statement in verse 8, it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Now, the streams in some places dry up in summer. We were just there in Arizona, and uh, there's many and many a riverbed. For anybody that's lived in Arizona or been there, there's many a riverbed that's nothing but a dried gulch. And the so-and-so river, well, where is it, you know? It's not there. But you don't want to camp out and put your tent down in that dry riverbed because you might be dead because the water's come down through there. And uh, they come like a wall all at once. Uh, Amazing. But here he assures us that this river is perpetual. It, It won't dry up. It's going to be there all the time. Now what is this river? What's he talking about? Is he talking about some kind of a river flowing out of literal, physical Jerusalem that waters the deserts over there? That wouldn't be much of a blessing to us, would it? I mean, it might be if you lived over there. But that's not what he's talking about. There is a river uh, whose streams make glad the city of God. And it's talked about a lot in Scripture. Uh, But let's read, first of all, the consummation of this river in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, and he showed me, verse 1, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit. Now think of this, beloved. Jesus said, if you, if you thirst, come unto me. He said, you can take of the water of life freely. But this water of life is not just a cup that you can take. There's a river of the water of life. And I want to remind you, these, even though these things are symbolical, they're talking about realities. There is a crystal clear river of life available to anybody who's thirsty. And it's as clear as crystal. It flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And look at this. Here's this tree of life. You remember that in Genesis, that an angel was set to guard the way of the tree of life so nobody could get to it. Now here it is, the tree of life lining on both sides of the river. On either side, there's this tree of life lining the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. Talking about something here, just like an, an herb has a medicinal quality, the leaves of this tree of life will heal the nations. There shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be written on their foreheads. 
Now let's go back and just pick up a couple of prophetic passages and then we'll talk about this some close. <clears throat> Joel chapter 3. I read that to you earlier about uh, the sun moon growing dark and the stars losing their brightness and so on. And Job 3.16, the heavens and the earth tremble. And verse 17, <clears throat> Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. Not talking about literal milk flowing, physical milk flowing out of physical hills, but it's talking about the reality of what's going to happen. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. Now listen. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So this river will flow out again. And then one more passage, Ezekiel <clears throat> chapter 47. And I spoke on the, this river... Uh, years ago. I don't know if I've made mention of it since then. Um, I uh, look back in my... The last time I know of that I actually spoke on this was in 1987, so I think it's probably safe <laughs> to touch on this again. But in Ezekiel 47... And verse 1, now here again, Ezekiel's seen a vision. He says to him, Son of man, have you seen this? He says, in other words, take notes about this. I want you to understand. So Ezekiel 47 and verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. For the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water. Now this is something. He has Ezekiel actually walked through that water, and it was water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, so he went a little further downstream, and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford. For the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river, I could not be forward. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? In other words, take this down. This river of grace and of the gospel and of the, and the river of life starts out like a little trickle. It flows from the throne. It starts out like a little trickle. And in a little while, it's too deep to swim in or too deep to, to ford. 
Verse 6, Then he brought me back to the bank of the river, and when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh or become healed. Now you know the picture, there's a Mediterranean there, salt water. That water, when that river hits it, the whole thing turns into healed water, fresh water. And it will come about, verse 9, that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish. For these waters go there and the others become fresh so everything will live where the river goes. Isn't that wonderful? Everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Enaglaim, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets, and their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will not be healed, but they will be given or left for salt. Interesting, isn't it? wouldn't have to be that way in the vision, but it's there. And by the river on its bank on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Not literal trees here, beloved. Their fruit will not fail. They'll bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. That's why. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now I just want to point out three things about this river. First of all, the source of the river. The source of the river is the throne of God. That's where the living water comes from. God says there in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is a fountain of living water. You think of, uh, you know, like... uh, Some of these Spanish explorers. Here's Ponce de Leon trying to find the fountain of youth. I don't know how much of that's uh, legend as far as uh, what they were looking for. But uh, there were legends. There was this legend that you could have this fountain that would give you youth. Well, there is a river of life. There's a river and it flows from God. It flows from the throne. He is the fountain of living waters. He is. In other words, all the things that the world is spending their lives, they'll spend their entire life sometimes, people will go from one thing to another. They tried this, and they get to the point where it doesn't do anything for them anymore, and they try something else. And all the while seeking, trying to find something that will satisfy, and all the while God is the source of the river of living water. What a thing this is. The river flows from the throne. It flows from God. He is the fountain of living waters. Uh, Again, all these ideas that if I obey God, it'll cost me in terms of life. No, it won't cost you in terms of life. Real life. If I become a Christian, I I won't have any 
satisfaction. I won't have any life. I want to live. I don't want to become a Christian. I want to live. Do you see what a lie that is? It's just the opposite. Satan promises life for disobedience. If you do this, you know, you'll have life. And the fact is, is that God is the fountain of living waters. He's the source of life. And anytime we turn anywhere else for satisfaction, we'll find ourselves with a mouthful of salt. Is really what happens. <clears throat> it says <clears throat> that this water flows from the throne. <clears throat> and not only the throne of God, but the throne of the Lamb there in Revelation we read. In other words, it doesn't just happen that there's living water for us. It happens at a great cost, and that's because Christ paid the price that we could have the water. He thirsted so that we might never have to thirst. <clears throat> you know, it's not just an arbitrary thing that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not that God arbitrarily said, I'm not going to save anybody unless they believe on Jesus, you know, unless they happen to be a Christian. That isn't it. There is a holy God. And somehow an unholy man has got to find his, how, to get, how to, he can get to a holy God. And if you're uh, someone worshiping a stone idol out in the jungle, that stone idol won't get you to a holy God. That's all it amounts to. That's why people are lost that don't know Christ. He's the way to God, and He's the one that makes this living water possible. So, <clears throat> first of all, the source of the living water is the throne. Secondly, the increase of the water. That's something we've got to get from this picture. Surely you ought to, it's like here in Ezekiel, if you get anything, you ought to get this. The river starts at the throne. And if you get anything, you ought to get this. The river starts as a trickle and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the way it is in our lives personally. It starts as a trickle. And um, isn't it a wonderful thing? Jesus said, blessed are those who have, for they shall have more. You'll have an abundance. You start out with any little thing if it's real. I'd rather have the tiniest bit that's real than have the biggest display of something that isn't real. If you have any little thing that's real, to him that has, more shall be given, and he shall have an abundance eventually. If you got any fruit, he'll purge you that you might bring forth more fruit. And uh, whatever we've got of this water of life, whatever little bit we've tasted, we've got this assurance. It gets deeper and bigger. And uh, the same thing happened historically. The river began to flow historically with the work of Christ and the church. And the gospel began to go out. Well, think of it. I mean, here the early church was, this little group of people that could fit into one room facing this mighty, vast, established, powerful religion of Judaism. And not only that, the even more powerful Roman Empire. It was an insurmountable thing. I mean, it's just a little trickle of water. And yet here we are today, and this is unthinkable. If you'd suppose you had lived in the time when Nero was burning 
Christians as torches. Would you have thought that one day, as Vance Havner said, men would be naming their boys Paul and their dogs Nero? <laughs> Look at what's happened. Look at what's happened. I mean, this despised little group of people, again, in the upper room, the, the group that was in the upper room would fit right in here. They'd fit in this room. And it was a bunch of ignorant and unlearned men. And the next thing you know, you follow down through history a little bit, and there's nowhere in the world that the river hasn't gone. I mean, Barbara, when she was down there in South America, way back in the jungle, they come upon this little group of people, and they're having a Bible study. It's incredible. The, the river has spread, and there's people, there's uh, cannibals from those little islands, those little specks of islands in the South Seas of New Hebrides. There's cannibals worshiping God uh, today because the river has gone out into all the world. Well, the increase of the river, and then finally, uh, the effects of the river. And surely we ought to be able to get this from Ezekiel 47. Uh, that river starts at the throne, it gets bigger and bigger, and what's it do? Everywhere the water goes, things live. And um, hasn't that been proved true? all down through history. Everywhere that water goes, there's life. And uh, amazing thing. It says there in Revelation. Let me just look at a couple verses in Revelation in closing. <clears throat> in Revelation... Um, 22 and verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take of the water of life without cost. Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone that is thirsty, come. Come and drink of this water. And so, this has been too brief on this, but I don't know if we'll look at it a little bit more next time. But at any rate, here are these two things side by side. The grace of God and the judgment of God. The stars falling out of the sky on the one hand and a river of life flowing out on the other hand. And... The amazing thing is, is that we live in a time when we can take of that water of life freely. We don't have to be afraid that we're being presumptuous. He says, if you're thirsty, you come. And you take of the water of life if you want it. Isn't it incredible? The possibility of having life and having the water of life. And yet men will scoff at that offer, waste their lives on things that don't satisfy, and end up facing this outpouring of wrath that we read about there in Isaiah and other places. May the Lord have mercy. Let's pray.
Father, we marvel at how much there is in Your Word about the stars falling out of the sky and the sun growing dark and the moon turning to blood and all of these cataclysmic things. Lord, we don't... We, we, we don't want to be fools that refuse to believe that what You've said is true. And we don't know what all these things mean, but we know that they're just a weak description of what it's going to be like when the heavens are rolled back and the Son of Man comes with, in the glory of the Father with His holy angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. And Lord, uh, we... We marvel that right after this is said, it says that there will be a river of life flowing out. And um, we thank you that it's not just a cup or two, but it's a river. There's a, there is a crystal clear river, and even now it's flowing, getting bigger and bigger, and that it'll be here forever. It'll never fail. And it's a permanent fixture of heaven, this river of grace. <clears throat> in life and uh, there'll be a place to satisfy our thirst forever spiritually speaking and it's here now Lord we we pray that you forgive us for in different ways forsaking the fountain of living waters and trying to hew out broken cisterns that won't hold water won't satisfy won't won't quench our thirst, just lead us to emptiness and barrenness. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Help us to return even today and tomorrow and this week to return repeatedly to the fountain of living waters, to, <clears throat> to the source of the stream, to receive life and to experience life. I pray, Lord, that uh, I know You're able and You've done it many times down through history. You've taken one phrase some of these things that we've read about this judgment <clears throat> and you've brought it home to men's hearts. And I pray you'd do it now before it's too late that it wouldn't be someday that somebody would, when the when these things begin to happen and, and it's too late and men begin to cry out as their hearts fail them for fear and we thank Lord of how you said you'd destroy the human race, like make it scarcer, make men scarcer than gold. And uh, it, uh, it does seem like the, just what you said. You said that the, na- the gate is narrow. The way is difficult that leads to life. Few find it. Many go in the broad gate. Many multitudes don't know you. And there, there's a day coming when it will be even worse. And the whole world will rise up to try to destroy um, Christ and His kingdom. And... Uh, when all that begins to happen, it's simply the gathering together of the feast of God. We we marvel at these things, Lord, these terrible pictures that you've given of what you're going to do. And I pray that you'd cause us here, that there wouldn't be any scoffers here that would just basically in their life and in their mind say, well, where is the promise of His coming? Everything just continues like it always did. Lord, uh, Help us to see this is real. And uh, we pray that you would then convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a meal here. Everyone's welcome to stay and we'll 